hope you've had a good Christmas uh, already this morning, hopefully with your loved ones. Hope you are looking forward to our time together in the Word this morning. I'm excited to bring uh, this passage to you. It is a passage from the book of Micah, chapter 5. I'll ask you to turn there now, if you would, please. Micah, chapter 5. We're going to read the first six verses. I, I suppose the reason, uh, my reason for choosing this passage this morning is fairly obvious. It's a very familiar prophecy to many of us that foretells the birth of the Messiah in the town of Bethlehem. But of course, it tells us much more than just the location of his birth. It gives us this this beautiful, striking picture of his rule, both over his own people and his rule over his enemies. And this prophecy, the, the intended effect of this prophecy is to give, is, it's to stir up faith and hope and joy in God's people. Notice there's not a lot of commands that are told for us, things for us to do. We are to read and hear this passage and believe and know that God will keep his word. He has kept his word in the sending of his son, and he will certainly keep his word to send his son again to claim his people for himself. So I'd like to read this passage now. I'm going to ask you if you are able uh, to uh, stand as we read God's word together. If you have your place. This is God's word. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod, they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. And he shall be their peace. When the Assyrian comes into our land and treads in our palaces, then we will raise against him seven shepherds and eight princes of men. They shall shepherd the land of Assyria with the sword and the land of Nimrod at its entrances. And he shall deliver us from the Assyrian when he comes into our land and treads within our border. Let's uh, pray to the Lord before we look at this further. Our God, we ask that you might use this portion of your word to give joy to your people. You know the condition of our hearts. You know all the circumstances of our lives. You know what this year has been like for every one of us. For some, it's been a very difficult year. There's been, there's been a lot of sorrow and tragedy in our world. And we are not equipped to fight the fight of faith if we do not find hope and joy in your word. So we pray that you would do that for us this morning. Teach us to love and value 
the person and rule of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Cause us to worship Him in a new way. And we pray it all in His name. Amen. Y'all can go ahead and be seated. The first six verses of Micah chapter 5 are the, actually the last part of a section that begins back in chapter 4, verse 9. I want you to notice the very first word in that verse, verse 9 of chapter 4. Now, why do you cry aloud? He's speaking to the nation of Israel, asking this rhetorical question, and the, the answer to his question is because, the reason why she, she is crying aloud is because uh, what she is facing is like a woman who is in labor. And then he uses the same word at the beginning of verse 11 of chapter 4. Now, many nations are assembled against you. He is speaking about the threat of siege and warfare against uh, God's people uh, during his time. And then at the beginning of our passage in chapter 5, he begins with the same word again, doesn't he? Now, muster your troops. Or gather together to face this military threat. It's actually a, a vivid way of describing the disaster that is coming upon Jerusalem and everything that's going to follow. What Micah is doing in this whole section is drawing a contrast between the threatening circumstances that faced the nation of Israel in his day and the promise of a future day in which God would act which God would rescue his people. And so he says here, the day of childbirth and labor pains is going to end with the Lord redeeming his people from the hand of their enemies. What he says in chapter 4, verse 10. The assembly of the nations against God's holy city is going to result in Zion, the people of God, defeating their enemies and threshing them like an ox, stamping out the grain on the threshing floor. The defeat and disgrace and the exile of God's people will only continue for a predetermined period of time. And what we see as we move into chapter 5 is uh, what we especially see is the identity and the work of this one who comes to rule God's people, to restore them from exile and to care for them like a shepherd tending his flock. And of course, it's speaking about the Lord Jesus. He is the one whom the Spirit of Christ, who is in Micah, is holding before us as the object of our trust. He is the one meant to command our attention throughout this passage. He is the shepherd ruler of Israel. So our reason for looking at this passage is not simply to, you know, stir up some sentimental feelings about the little town of Bethlehem. It is to seek a clearer revelation of Jesus who he is, what he has accomplished for his people. So beginning in verse 1, we see the coming crisis of God's people. The coming crisis of God's people. God's people face defeat and disgrace. The daughter of troops, which is the city of Jerusalem, is who he's talking about there, she's told to get ready for battle. This, this is, fits with what we saw in chapter 4. The enemy nations are going to lay siege against her, and the result of that siege is going to be defeat and disgrace for Israel 
and her present rulers. The king of Israel, called the judge of Israel in this verse, is going to be struck on the cheek with the rod. It says there at the end of verse 1. So there are different ideas what, the, what king of Israel Micah is referring to. Some would say it's Hezekiah, who was king uh, during Micah's ministry uh, when Assyria laid siege to Jerusalem. But that siege actually resulted in the defeat of the Assyrians, not the people of Jerusalem. And so I think it's more likely that he is looking into the, further into the future, and it's talking about Zedekiah, who was king when the Babylonians attacked and conquered Jerusalem a little more than a hundred years later. And you can read about that in 2 Kings 25 or Jeremiah chapter 52. It was a time of really unspeakable suffering and destruction for the people of Israel. And of course, the reason this defeat and suffering came upon them was because God was judging them for their sin. It's what Micah has been preaching about for the first three chapters of the book. At the end of chapter 3, the people are still comforting themselves with uh, this false assurance. They say, um, in the, at the end of verse 11, they say, Is not the Lord in the midst of us? No disaster shall come upon us. But he gives the answer in verse 12, Therefore, because of you, Zion shall be plowed as a field. Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins. And what Micah directs our attention to here in verse 1 of chapter 5 is the shameful treatment and the disgrace that falls upon the leader or the judge of Israel. And there is some really dark irony here. For those who know the promise of God spoken to the Davidic king in Psalm 2. If you remember Psalm 2, the son of David was supposed to ask the Lord and receive what? Supposed to receive the nations as his heritage and the ends of the earth as his possession. He was supposed to rule the nations and some translations will say break the nations with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. But instead of wielding his rod to strike the nations... The ruler of Israel, the son of David, is being struck on the cheek with a rod by the nations. It is the defeat and disgrace that come upon the nation because of its unfaithfulness to Yahweh. And it begins this age of exile from which God's people need rescued. Now, we don't believe that Micah could see everything as clearly everything about Christ as clearly as we do on this side of the cross and the resurrection. But I am absolutely sure that this language is too specific to be simply a coincidence. Because what happens when the true ruler, the future ruler, the true shepherd of Israel gives up his life to save his people and to rescue them from the defeat and disgrace of exile, being banished from God's kingdom in his presence. We read the description of events in Matthew chapter 27. The soldiers of foreign armies are mocking Jesus. They're ridiculing the claim that he is king of the Jews. So in their mockery, you remember the account, in their mockery they give him several objects 
that would be commonly recognized as symbols belonging to a king. Here, king, is your scarlet robe. Here, king of the Jews, take this crown to wear. And of course, we remember the, the crown is made of thorns. And after the robe and the crown, Matthew records, they put a reed in his right hand. What is that? Well, it's, it's the pretend rod they're giving to the king, sometimes called the scepter, this mock symbol of his authority and rule. Matthew continues to describe how they, they kneel before him, hail king of the Jews, they spit on him, and they take the reed and strike him on the head with a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek Jesus takes the disgrace that properly belongs to the wicked ruler of an unfaithful people and he shares that shame in order to rescue them redeem them from their enemies what he has to do to accomplish everything else that we are going to read about in the rest of this passage. We're actually getting a little bit ahead of the story. So in verse 2, the focus shifts from Jerusalem to Bethlehem. And here the Holy Spirit inspires Micah to point us to a moment in time when once again the city of Bethlehem takes center stage in the drama of redemptive history. Now, we've seen God provide for his people in the city of Bethlehem over the last four weeks, haven't we? As Brett led us through the book of Ruth, we saw God provide food for the hungry. We saw him provide a family for the bereaved. We saw him provide for the redemption of the family inheritance. And most of all, we saw how God established the messianic line through the tribe of Judah and what would become the family of David the line of the Messiah would continue and be preserved by God's sovereign care there in Bethlehem for a few more generations before David would become king and establish his throne in Jerusalem. But God made it his plan and his purpose to once again visit the people of Bethlehem. And we know the reason is not because of anything so impressive about the city itself. In fact, Micah intentionally takes note of Bethlehem's small size. Depending what translation you are using, it is said to be little among the thousands of Judah or too little to be among the clans of Judah. The point is it doesn't have a large population. It's not an important cultural or political center. It is God exercising his sovereign choice to use what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. It is God using what is weak in the world in order to shame the strong. It is God using what is low and despised in the world and things that have nothing to really make us sit up and take notice in order to bring all human boasting to an end before him. From this little humble town, God says, I will raise up the one who is going to be ruler in Israel. Now, interpreters are divided about the meaning of the last part of verse 2. If you have an older translation, it may say something like, his goings forth are from days of old, from everlasting. Or more literally, it might say from old times, from, from days of eternity. And if that is the way we're supposed to understand it, that would be a pretty clear reference to the eternality 
of Christ, the position He holds from all eternity as co-equal with the Father, the eternal Son of God. That's one possibility. But then other interpreters point out that this expression is used fairly commonly in the Old Testament, including right here in the book of Micah, uh, over in chapter 7. You can turn there if you like. In verse 14, he is praying, Micah is praying that God would shepherd his people and would let them graze in the fields of Bashan and Gilead as in the days of old. And that's the same expression, the days of old. Then he says something similar in verse 20. He declares his trust that God will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. And that's the same expression that's being used in all three of those places. So this expression, days of old, seems to refer to a time in the past that's, that's far in the past, but it's still within human history, so not necessarily eternity. And if that's the way he's using this expression here in Micah chapter 5, it would be talking about the ancient ancestral roots of the Messiah coming from the family line of David. So in my studies uh, and my judgment, I think it, it could go either way, but probably the second interpretation is really the more reliable. But at the very least, uh, this is, we can say this with absolute certainty. The birth of Jesus in the city of David, from the line of David, at a particular point in history, is not simply the result of human choices or happy accidents or random fate. It is the result of the sovereign, predetermined, foreordained plan of God. So I want us to think about all those events we've been observing for the last four weeks in the book of Ruth. Why did they happen the way that they did? Why did famine come to Israel at the time that it did? And why did Elimelech choose to take his family to Moab and not to Egypt or some other nearby country there in the ancient Near East? Why did Elimelech and Naomi's son take Ruth to be his wife, not some other Moabite woman? Why did God restore the harvest to Bethlehem when he did? Why did Ruth happen to come to the field belonging to Boaz? Why didn't the other relative, remember Mr. So-and-so, he was closer than Boaz. Why didn't he choose to redeem Ruth and the family inheritance? Of course, the answer is all these events were orchestrated by the hand of God. God is the one who brings time and place and people together in just the way that he chooses. And that's just what we follow in the story of Ruth. So from Ruth to David, and from David to Christ, all the events of history are nothing less and nothing more than the outworking of God's perfect plan. And that plan all centers around the identity and the actions of this one who comes forth who is going to be ruler in Israel. So now we want to look at verses 3 through 6. The coming deliverance. Christ rescues and restores his people from exile. The story is not complete if we end with the birth of Christ in Bethlehem. Verses 3 through 6 uh, really tie verses 1 and 2 together and they form a climax for the entire section. 
by telling us what this ruler born in Bethlehem is going to accomplish when he comes. Now the first part of verse 3 gives us the idea that the period of exile continues for a long time. There is something much bigger going on here than the mere fact of their physical relocation to Babylon. It is the idea begun all the way back in the garden, the the idea of banishment, exile, being kicked out of God's presence and then finally restored. This exile continues until the coming of this ruler. God gives the people of Israel up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. That's probably not speaking about Mary, the one who is in labor. Um, Chapter 4, verse 10 already told us who the woman in labor is. It's the nation of Israel. The labor pains are the whole time of exile. But when this one comes, it says the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. In other words, they return from exile. They're reunited with their brothers and more importantly, with God. The days of defeat and disgrace at the hand of their enemies are over. That's because this mighty ruler stands and shepherds his flock in the strength and majesty of the name of the Lord. And they shall dwell secure because of his great rule that extends to the ends of the earth. God's people find peace in this coming ruler. It actually says he shall be their peace. This great ruler delivers his people, gives them protection from the enemy. The enemy that Micah mentions here is the Assyrian. That's the threat faced by the nation of Judah in Micah's day. They were the dominant world power of that time. They were known not just for their military might, but also for their excessive cruelty. So think of the Soviet Union at the height of the Cold War and then combine that with the the bloodthirsty tactics of ISIS that we've heard about that are meant to terrify and intimidate their opponents, their enemies. Really, that's the kind of reputation Assyria had at this time. They stand as a representative of the most dreaded, most vicious enemy you can imagine. But... The prophetic announcement spoken through Micah tells us of a great shepherd who rescues his flock from this terrible enemy. I think we're supposed to think of David again, taking care of his father's sheep. Remember he tells Saul in 1 Samuel 17 how sometimes a lion or bear would come and take one of the lambs from the flock. And David says, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his, out of his mouth. People of God are the lamb in the lion's mouth. It's too late for them to run away. They're not going to save themselves, are they? They need a shepherd who will save them from the clutches of this powerful, ferocious enemy. And this promise, the promise of a shepherd ruler who comes to rescue and restore God's people, becomes the only hope they can cling to over the dark centuries that are going to follow. When the people of Jerusalem looked over the city walls and saw the Assyrian army amassed against them, they were supposed to trust 
God's promise. There will be a ruler in Israel who will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. 130 years later, when the armies of Nebuchadnezzar broke through the walls and destroyed the city and carried them off to Babylon, they were still supposed to trust that promise. They shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth and he shall be their peace. When a relative handful of Jews returns to Jerusalem and Judah after 70 years of captivity when they are faced with the ruined shell that their city and their nation have become, when they encounter difficulties and discouragement and they see that they're still dominated by the Gentile nations around them, where do they find hope and, and purpose and meaning in their lives? They find it in the scrolls they took with them to Babylon and then brought back to Jerusalem and the scribes copy them from one generation to the next. And they read them out loud in the synagogues every Sabbath. And the remnant of God's people listens to these promises of the coming messianic age written in Micah or Isaiah or one of the other prophets. And they learn to hold these promises in their hearts. They pass them down to their children. And they teach them the way things are now. It's not the way it's always going to be. God has promised us He will send us a ruler who will save us from our dreaded enemies and He's going to restore peace and righteousness on earth. The nations will learn to worship God. and Everything will work the way it's supposed to, the way God made it in the first place. That's what faith looked like for roughly 700 years. From the time Micah spoke these words until the night an angel appeared to a bunch of shepherds out in the fields near Bethlehem. To you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And those shepherds are supposed to connect the words of the angel with the words of the prophets that they've been hearing and realize here was the fulfillment of everything they've been waiting for. Well, what about us? We live in the days of the New Covenant. We who are not God's people have been made part of His people. We have been grafted into that tree as Paul describes in Romans 11 or as he teaches In Ephesians 2, we who were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise have now been brought near by the blood of Christ. So in a way, not understood very clearly by Micah himself, we who are in Christ are actually included in the fulfillment and the benefits of his prophecy. It's not just that God has promised to defeat our enemies. It's that we who were God's enemies have been made the subjects of His rule and the objects of His favor. Standing on this side of the cross, we see what they could not see in the days of the Old Testament. The Messianic age has been inaugurated through the life and ministry and death of Jesus. 
But the full and final blessings of that age are still in the future. That's because even though the age of the Messiah has come, God has not yet done away with this present evil age because he is still giving his enemies the opportunity to become subjects of his saving rule. And so living in this period of time that is really an overlap between the two ages, God's people, of course, still experience many difficulties, don't they? They're still surrounded by enemies. They still face persecution and tribulation and conflict. They suffer the consequences of living in a world that is full of evil. And so, in some very fundamental ways, the life of faith lived in this age is identical to the faith of the Jewish remnant waiting all those years for Christ's birth. Hebrews tells us faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. The believing remnant in Micah's day could not see the birth of Christ, which was going to come seven centuries later. But they placed their hope in that promise. Because it was the content of God's word, it became the conviction of their hearts. And that kind of biblical, God-glorifying faith follows the same pattern among God's people today. No matter how impossible it seems, no matter how long it takes to be fulfilled, no matter how fiercely it's assaulted, no matter what sufferings and sorrows are involved, the promise of God wrapped up in the coming of His Son becomes the focal point of their lives. His saving rule becomes the foundation and source of their security and joy and worship. They hear the word of God spoken through his prophets and apostles written down in scripture. And the words resonate. They they echo in our hearts with meaning and significance. The prayer of the remnant expressed in Isaiah 26 verse 13 becomes the prayer of God's people in our day as well. I want to read that. Isaiah 26, 13. O Lord, our God, other lords besides you have ruled over us. But your name alone we bring to remembrance. Is that your prayer this morning? Have you recognized the tragic results of having other lords rule over you? Is the remembrance of his name and the reality of his rule and the promise of his presence your source of true hope and joy? There may be someone here this morning or someone listening to my voice on the recording If you are really honest, you would say, you know, those things are not really a source of joy in my life. If anything, they're kind of boring and really more of a distraction from getting what I want out of life. If that is the attitude of your heart, then I have to tell you where you are found in Micah 5. If you are not part of the remnant of God's people finding joy in Christ's rule, 
then you are like the Assyrians who will be judged and destroyed under Christ's rule. God's word will be fulfilled. Christ's rule will be extended over all the earth. Those who rebel against his rule will receive his judgment. Those who kneel before him in faith and trust in his salvation will find that he is their peace. This one born in Bethlehem will save his people. The ruler of Israel is the hope of the earth. Let's pray to him now.